Uh. Hi, I'm Isabeau. And I'm Morgan. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About remakes. About remixes. About adaptation. About Brooklyn! About gentrification. About teens! About sexy nudes. Hot teen nudes. Yeah. That's a <laughs> child pornography. Yeah, it's a big part of this podcast. This is also a podcast about Jane Austen. But most of all, <laughs> it's about that first thing. And ourselves. And for this month, it is also mostly about Jane Austen. Your girl, Jane. J- girl! This is our inaugural Jane-uary book. Uh, we're glad that you are joining us on Ooh. this Jane journey. J-train. Choo-choo! Mm. I like J-train. That's really good. All right. So this week, we're talking about Pride, uh, which was, what was it? The Great Big Romance Read for December. The Great Big Romance Read for December. So hopefully, you, the listeners, it's January now. It's Excuse me. Pardon me. Pardon me. It's January now. So I bet quite a few of you have read this. Mm-hmm. What did you guys think of it? Let us know. Oh, on the back of this book, it's praise for American Street, mm-hmm. not praise for this book. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Who picks the great romance reads? For the the ripped bodice. This is the first time that anything's ever happened like this before. That's why it's inaugural. Oh, this is the first one. Mm-hmm. They coordinated across all the romance book clubs, all of the romance library branches, all of everybody. I think like maybe this is an interesting place to start after we do our summer. So who wants to do the summary? I think you should. All right. So in this version of Pride and Prejudice, we have Zuri Luz as our Elizabeth. Her sister Jane is Janae. Kitty and Lydia are Kayla and Layla and Mary is Marisol. All very on the nose. Mm-hmm. It's like very clearly, you can map it. We have Darius Darcy and rather than his best friend Bingley, we have his older brother Ainsley. Mr. Wickham will be played by Warren and Grandma Darcy will be playing the role of Catherine de Bourgh. Yeah. And then we have a cast of neighborhood characters. We have Bingley's sister is now their friend from school, Carrie. Yeah. And Mr. Collins is <laughs> Landlord's nephew, Colin. And her her friend friend is Charlize. Yes, Mm -hmm. Charlize, who plays the role of Charlotte. Charlotte, fittingly enough. Mm -hmm. I love that name, Charlotte. I do too. It's such a really pretty name. I'm so glad the royal baby got named Charlotte. Me too. And George. Mm -hmm. Good names. Yeah. Anyways, what were we talking about? (laughs) Talking about Pride and Prejudice. (laughs) So basically, the same things that happen in Pride and Prejudice happen in this book. What are the differences? So one of the major differences is that they're teens. And that really changed things as far as both stakes and what could and couldn't happen. So I thought that was an interesting move. Warren is potentially even more charming than Mr. Wickham. I immediately liked him, even though I was like, oh, your name is W. You're trouble. So that was an interesting change. And then one of the changes, especially that I liked most at the beginning, was the relationship between Mr. and Mrs. Benitez. Mama isn't a shrew. She's not played for laughs in the same way that Mrs. Bennett is played for laughs in Pride and Prejudice. And I, I think thought, she does get played for laughs. I mean, a little bit, but the laughs are different. They Mm. don't feel like they're at her expense so much. Mm. Mm. And her relationship with her husband is one founded on love rather than necessity, which is a welcome change as well. Which is like a really interesting move that like so many adaptations of Pride and Prejudice have made that Mm -hmm. they really want to make the marriage between the Bennets something that is unknowable to their daughters but still exists. Like they're always very generous with that relationship in a way that I don't think the canonical work is. I also want 
to talk about how weird it is or strange or different that this adaptation actually makes our characters younger Mm -hmm. and in the future Mm -hmm. from the canonical work in our present moment. And critically, the story takes place in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Sure does. Yeah. I mean, do you want to dive into the adaptation part of it or the gentrification part of it? (sighs) What does being modern do? What does being teens do? Well, I I think teens is a good place to start because I like the book. I finished it very quickly. Mm -hmm. And there's a part of me that was like disappointed, but then I have to remind myself like this isn't for me. Mm -hmm. This is a book for teens. And I should have known because I checked this book out from Harold Washington Library. Look at this. The call number is Teen Thick Zaboy. Uh, <laughs> That's the, a great call number. I got there and they were like, oh, this book is actually kept in our U Media section mm. and it's open weird hours. I knew that. And so I was like, where do I go if it's closed? And they're like, oh, it's open till eight. So for those of you who don't know, like U Media is a program in Chicago Public Libraries where teens can go and work on projects and they do so much stuff they like have musical instruments they have design software they can sew clothing like any kind of creative expression and they work collaboratively and it just kind of happens organically and I realized as I was walking towards you media that the reason I hadn't immediately gone there even though I knew where it was and I knew what it was is that I did not want to be in a teen scene (laughs) and I like turn the corner and I hear someone like practicing the baseline from smells like teen spirit and a friend like yelling while they're on the drums and I was like no the teen scene and I like walked in and it was absolute like teenage I mean it was very cool I'm very happy for them Mm -hmm. I was immediately deep inside myself shuffling towards the counter and I was like excuse me I need this book and they were like I'll go get it for you and I was like thank you so much I'm just gonna wait here by the counter they're like you can check it out here or you can check it out in the main lobby and I was like I think I'll take my book to the main lobby (laughs) but like you know that kind of thing of like if I were 16 and I walked into U Media I would be like this is the best yeah totally all this stuff no it's like completely it's pretty unregulated Mm -hmm. like you know there's not like organized fun Mm -mm. you know it's like the hip librarian that just hangs out and is able to like help you do the stuff holy shit the librarians were the coolest looking people I've ever seen and like very chill Mm -hmm. like they acted like they didn't even notice the very loud noises happening all around them so when I look back on this book or I think critically about this book. This is a book written for a group of people who have way more energy, way less real like heartbreak. Mm-hmm. Like the angst has to be different because mm-hmm. angst, you're talking about stakes. Yeah. And you the know, stakes, stakes have are, to be different they when they're have teens. To be, when you're a teen because you just don't have like, you know, the fact that their landlady is always kind of sheltering them from the fact that she's been offered lots of money mm-hmm. or like how her father tells her at the end, like we have to move and like these pressures for money like they're Mm -hmm. always happening on the periphery but they never come into our central relationship not really pretty much only when she uses it as a tool to like put him in his place well yeah yeah to belittle him for his socioeconomic status and I just want that to be something that's always in my mind and Mm -hmm. I just wanted to call it out but like not everything is for everyone right and this book is for teens yep which makes it I would love to hear what a teen thinks about it me too actually because you know the New York Times and actually 
most of the women who are involved in any kind of romance workshop are not teens. And I'm really curious as to, you know, I can enjoy a young adult novel. Yeah, um, I mean, we love We loved Anna Dressed in, in Blood. And there was actually a lot of stuff about like <laughs> a lot of Zuri. About we talked about earlier about like she wasn't completely likable to us. But then she's a teen. Like they're all <laughs> assholes, you know? That's and I such think it's a just good a, point. I think it's just a good way of writing a teen. Like they're all righteous indignation about anything they have an opinion on. That's such a good point. So like one of the major differences that we're like clearly working on here is the one of age, which changes the stakes distinctly. So Elizabeth Bennett is 22 in Pride and Prejudice and her younger Mm -hmm. sister Lydia is a baby 15. Yeah. In this book, we have 16 or 17. She's going to be a senior. She's she's 17. 17. She's 17. And her twin sisters, Kayla and Layla are then 13, 13, which seems criminally young (laughs) in a way that even 15 in 1815 didn't feel like there's a real sense of danger knowing what's going to happen or could potentially happen to Layla yeah and I think one of the more pleasurable things about reading this book and reading that adaptation which I think kind of gets at the pleasure of romance itself was knowing what was going to happen Mm -hmm. and being curious as to how we would get there Mm -hmm. like how are we going to make the situation between Wickham and Layla Layla, or sorry Warren and Layla Mm -hmm. how are we going to map that yeah and And I think this book did a really good job it was really smart actually yeah yeah. the movement of stakes in that particular instance between also then Darcy's younger sister Georgia rather than Georgiana Mm -hmm. it's that Warren has shared these sexually explicit pictures of Georgia around the school sexy photos yeah we're told sexy photos okay and like that that was enough to ruin her reputation at her private school and now she has to go to boarding school which I actually once we met their grandma yeah and the fact that they're not really like New York types they're mm-hmm. more DC metro area types mm-hmm. that kind the of mid-Atlantic yeah that kind of made me I was like yeah I can see how that would happen yeah if you could just pull your daughter out of a situation and send her to boarding school you would yeah yeah I was a little weirded out that like Warren's school authority didn't come down harder on, on him yeah but like if they did then there wouldn't be the rest of the story so I guess mm-hmm. that's a plot device and one that's like when you move something out of its time and then like remix it for our own moment. Like that was one where I was like, mm, I think this school would have come down a little bit harder. Georgia was only 15. Yeah. I was wondering like, how is Layla going to get into the mix with this guy? Because he's 17 and mm-hmm. it's like our current moment. But then you like learn like, oh, he's like real skeevy. Yeah. And so 13 doesn't feel like that much of a stone's throw, you know, from what he would do. You know, he is more charming than Wickham. Mm-hmm. Warren is more charming than Wickham and so I think they have to make him like more grotesque I mean Wickham's pretty grotesque he like runs away with Lydia but I mean like like, Wickham has motivations that are financial and manipulative in nature yeah and Warren doesn't have those same motivations he's just very very skeevy and I think to create a balance perhaps the author was like well if his only motivation is gonna be to be gross to be gross then you need to make him it's a really good point about Wickham like he's charming but also like the way in which he's maneuvering all of this is to secure his own future because he doesn't have one yeah huh. free Wickham Wickham's <laughs> just trying to make it work in this crazy crazy world yeah it's weird that like Warren is humanizing Wickham for me in a way that I've never investigated before because you're like oh this is an actual bad person Wickham is an actual bad person too like mo- you know leading young naive sheltered and that's the other part of this too all of these young women are incredibly sheltered yeah and that idea of being provincial living in a massive city and still being very provincial I was really that. interesting and clear but that that kind of gets into these questions of how this book is talking about gentrification. Yeah. Some real problems too then 
that came up with Zuri in ways that she began to feel unbelievable to me, where she's talking to someone and we're given to understand that she's an avid and voracious reader and she reads all types of books and she has this like longstanding date with her dad to this like little bookseller on the street and she loves spending time reading books and then like stuff would come up, like some vineyard owned by Martha. And I was like, you would have a parlance of Martha's Vineyard on the East Coast, even if you live in Brooklyn and are sheltered. Yeah, I just kind of was wondering what books she was reading. Yeah, there felt like stuff that if you're reading voraciously, you would have at least a teasing knowledge of. Mm -hmm. But this is me like trying to fill in a gap that is just a gap. But I think a way you could shore that up is like at that point in the text, she's just being righteously indignant, feeling self-conscious about her own situation and doubling Mm -hmm. down on that, which God, I know so many adults who do this, but it is very much a thing that teens do. For sure. Where they're like, "Mm, I don't know that because it's not worth knowing, you know? (laughs) Yeah, she had a lot of that sass where it's like all right but one of the things that you're talking about this provincial nature of like living in what is essentially the new Rome and like when her sister comes home from Syracuse and is like I want to see the world and she's like we've been places and she's like we've been to two states yeah and it's like Pennsylvania and New Jersey yeah for malls yeah (laughs) the water park and so like it was a big deal for her to travel to DC on her own Mm -hmm. and like I thought that was a wonderful way of mapping Pride and Prejudice onto this book we are really inside of our communities and like if you don't have a reason to leave then you don't yeah if you don't have a reason to leave then you don't growing up where I grew up I was always very resentful of people from big cities and I was Mm -hmm. like how could they possibly be this like small-minded you know but I had to drive six hours to get to a mall you know if I wanted to see a slight change in elevation I had to drive (laughs) like four hours you know what I mean this guy I was in a race and media class in my undergrad and he was cool he was a good pal or whatever we were at the same discussion table and we were talking about how privilege isn't just flat you Mm -hmm. know and how things change and he was like yeah like I went to this really nice school in Kansas City which shall remain nameless on this podcast and he's like but if I wanted to take an IB course like my school is AP if I wanted to take an IB course I had to go 30 minutes to the next high school oh my god and you know I grew up in a town where my high school offered one AP course and if I wanted to take another AP course I was out of luck the next closest high school that would have been 45 minutes away and also a shit show Mm -hmm. you know and it would just be like I'm going here to take one other AP course it was just very very upsetting and I remember in that moment I got really upset and I was like you're not proving the point that like privilege is movable you're proving the point that it's rankable like this is my situation objectively worse than your situation and I remember getting so worked up but that's like I do think this book is doing a better job not to give it too much credit than me in college (laughs) at understanding how privilege is movable yeah this book is really really invested in our articulating all of the ways in which that's working. I found those spaces where like privilege was moving in like a wave fashion. Like there's this moment where Zuri says something to Darius about like what it is to like have this much money and have like this mansion and like how five families could fit there. And yeah. he's like, you know, it hasn't always been easy for me. Like this part of it, this money part has been easy, sure. But like this other part where like I grew up in, you know, uh, an apartment in Manhattan with a doorman and I was cute when I was three to white neighbors but like as soon as I had some bass in my voice that changed and they didn't know me anymore and like that moved to discussion about how race 
and money and all of that is like a way of being seen or is a way of being legible to a community that you either are or aren't in was really good I was thinking about when he goes to the party and immediately becomes a highly performative yeah and how much she hates it yeah and I think I was really surprised that the book wasn't willing to kind of name that in Mm -hmm. any particular did not want to like Zuri doesn't tell him he's being minstrelly Mm -hmm. but that's what it reads as Mm -hmm. very and like this idea of like who you really are Mm -hmm. and I think that's an interesting question for teens who are you really and when are you your true self because he says like just sheer amount of time he spends with these people in this what is clearly performative position could mean that that's the real him Mm -hmm. but it probably doesn't but you know what I mean like you know in so many ways that like Darcy the character is hard to pin down also Darius became hard to pin down because he is aloof and standing office she is shy those are all true things and also then you add that he's not really comfortable anywhere he's not truly comfortable at school because of this performative aspect which also seems like really true to teen experience but also like doubly true if you're one of seven black kids at your school or not one of the scholarship kids which adds like a whole other thing to the way you perform blackness in that school he's not you know comfortable at his grandma's he's not comfortable in the new neighborhood it's just like Darius even more more than Darcy just like really seemed isolated and at sea for most of the novel. Yeah, he really does. And I I think that kind of is a nice hinge into this idea of adaptation Mm -hmm. and this idea of Austin and of course the central romance text, I think to this very day, Pride and Prejudice. For sure. I also want to like just put a pin in this. I want to talk about this as a romance novel. Sure. And like if in this post flame in the flower world that we live in, this something like this can still count as a romance. And if it does, why? And if it doesn't, why? But I think this idea of adaptation, I realized I did feel some of the same things I felt the first time I read Pride and Prejudice. And I think the moves are so affecting in any setting that you put them in, Mm -hmm. right? The idea of like family and you're this bookish middle child, a love triangle forming. No one is who you think they are Mm -hmm. and the learning. It just was uh, really surprising to me how affecting the moves of Pride and Prejudice are in this very different context. The corners are tight and like that relevatory moment that happens in this book when she goes to Howard is essentially supposed to be like when she sees Darcy anew at his place and like he's softer with his sister he's like more authentically himself. Yeah when she goes on that trip with her like aunt and uncle or whatever. Yeah exactly to the Lake District and that was such a tight turn in both of these books where it's like you felt it like she gets up to do this spoken word thing and he just happens to be in the audience (laughs) Bus boys and poets. Yeah. And like that moment felt almost exactly like when she sees him at Pemberley. Yeah. You're so right. Like, but then the kind of the revelation of the house in Bushwick. So, like, initially I was like, well, this is him in Pemberley, but then I'm like, he's really unhappy. And then we also mm-hmm. kind of condense the attack by the grandma into that. It's folded yeah. in in an interesting way, but then we still get the like revelation of how much he loves his fancy house. Mm-hmm. Like, ultimately, I know that people are like, oh, but it's just Darcy being very into his very fancy house yeah, is like what it is true. and we still have that moment mm-hmm. where he like shows her the nooks and crannies of their enormous home in Bushwick mm-hmm. yeah but like the way in which he's only comfortable in that house it's like he's really only comfortable in like the basement alcove that's like been built for him yeah. in Ainsley yeah yeah but like there again like that's the and the roof yeah and the roof which is so beautiful I want a rooftop garden but like there again like this move to teens means that like Darcy is not the ma- 
master and commander of that home. Whereas yeah. like Darcy, he is the master and commander of his basement. He sure is, <laughs> which man. is such a teen thing. <laughs> I love the basement alcove. For oh my boys. god! Should I ever have a child, I am not going to have a finished basement because no good happens in finished basements with teens. It's so true, especially if it has its own access door. Like, Ugh, oh. and they're so gross down there. Yeah, they are. <laughs> I uh, I was at a wedding for my boyfriend's high school friends and they were talking about the basement that they inhabited. It was a very good toast, but the guy spent a little while describing his family basement where these two youngsters who got wed met. And he was talking about how there was like a bookshelf that the cat always peed on. <laughs> and so they had just stopped cleaning it and like oodles of gaming console. It was just like one of those like unifying things. I always think about how different my upbringing was to the person I'm with, but there is something about a really gross basement and teens. Of course, Darius's basement is very nice. Yeah, it's, you know, plush and gorgeous and both boys have their own bedroom plus a communal space plus a refrigerator. But I guess it stands to reason it is a truth universally acknowledged. (laughs) Boys with basements. That a boy with a basement is in need of a gross couch. That's true. Usually whenever we get like adaptations that are thrusting the story into our current moment, there's this idea that you have to raise the age of the characters because they tend to be children. They do when they're making life altering decisions. decisions. Yeah. And that makes people feel icky. Yeah. But this book actually downgrades their ages quite a bit. Yeah. makes them significantly younger. Now, part of that is, of course, our author. Like mm-hmm. this is the palette that she paints with. Yeah. Yep. Why? YA but it is it's a really interesting move it is an interesting move and I think like for some of the stuff that we're talking about it's really effective and sometimes it like wasn't as effective and one of those scenes for me was like as you talked about earlier was this enfolding of like the grandma Catherine de Berg Uh scene of conflict and there are two incredible conflicts between Elizabeth and Catherine de Berg, both are great. And in this one, they're condensed into one and it makes a difference that it's grandma rather than distant aunt. Mm-hmm. It makes a difference that Zuri doesn't have any place to escape to. Yeah. And like in Pride and Prejudice, Elizabeth, first she can go back to the Collinses and in second, she's in her own home. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that like Zuri's only escape route is then Darcy's car, which she's already kind of vaguely uncomfortable with, shaded that yeah. conflict in a way that I wasn't like, I don't know. It certainly didn't take any of her agency away. That's not what I'm yeah. like manifesting the, around. But yeah. like she was really rude and like yeah. so was grandma. But I needed a more stinging set down than like weird harangue over lobster. But what's a teen going to say? I know. What's a teenage girl going to say to a stately older woman her presence is enough of a stinging blow to that woman and I think like there is that really great moment that kind of reveals I think more correctly than the who's Martha and what's her vineyard Mm -hmm. which is whenever she gets to the house and realizes she's unwelcome she asks where she can get on the fastest bus to the station it's like you're in the suburbs there's no no public transit here I thought that was a really affecting example because that's the kind of thing that like you wouldn't know unless you were there because a lack of public transit isn't something that is apparent in books about the suburbs mm-hmm. or set in the suburbs. And also things that are set in the suburbs are always kind of trying to not look like they're set in the suburbs mm-hmm. or they're doing that like very like ticky tacky Stepford Stepford shit. Catherine de Berg is such a towering figure. And like that's one of the moments where it's like, I think this book is incredible at setting a scene. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes the scenes are so good. She has this whole thing about where she's walking around a 
different part of Brooklyn with Darius and she realizes that it's not just Bushwick that's home but like when you're with someone you love that all places are home Mm -hmm. and like the sun is shining even though it's not all of that was so beautiful but sometimes the dialogue itself isn't quite as effective and like that's so too bad well we kind of had that discussion of like the dialogue wasn't effective for us sometimes it felt trite Mm -hmm. it certainly felt forced but then I was like well maybe that's just how I'm interpreting it because if I'm reading it my own voice it sounds it would sound ridiculous let's actually do an example all right would you like to pick a passage you would like me to read a piece of dialogue be gentle Okay. I don't want any sound bites getting out and ruining my career. I'll never get into Georgetown. How about this? Starting with, I give him a look. Don't pat yourself on the back just yet, Warren. Flowers are cool, but we're still just chillin'. <laughs> you know, I create characters, but it still sounds like, now let's get off this block and chill somewhere else. How about we stay right here? I say while looking down the block for any sign of mama. Aren't you going to get in trouble? He asks. I'll get in trouble if we keep going out and you never meet my parents. Like, I can't tell if it's just, it feels silly and forced because my voice, it sounds like a train wreck or because it's actually kind of trite and forced and like an attempt at recreating a language that is so not on the page, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's not so different from whenever we have a Scottish layered Mm -hmm. and they do those crazy phonetic spellings, putting the apostrophes dropping like the last letters and everything and having 11 R's and having 11 R's, you know, and like kind of doing this to like create a false sense of authenticity. Whereas I think if you know enough about the characters, you can of course put slang in there, but doing stuff like putting the apostrophes and like chill and italics and all that shit, it's a little too extra. And I think like in other hands where we've had like a more authentic portrayal of like a language that is mostly spoken, like Alyssa Cole, when she has the friends speaking to each other, even in their text messages, it feels a little trite. And like the way that text and phones and this was used was so sparingly and it was like essentially just Darcy's letter but I was like why even have this at all then if you're going to write about a moment they should be on their phones more yeah but also then if you're only using it at this point of climactic crisis you know I guess that's a really good point like when I was reading Alyssa Cole I never noticed it Mm -hmm. whereas like here it's hard not to yeah it does it comes out more so maybe it's not just me no and my deep Midwestern <laughs> middle-class white lady. No, and I think like that's one of the things that's so <laughs> weird about like the effectiveness of this book because like it is actually just kind of a pleasure to read. Like yeah. I got through it very quickly as well. E.B. Zaboy is incredible at laying out a scene, especially like romanticizing and non-romanticizing Bushwick in a way that's like, here are all the beautiful cracks, fissures and nooks that make it special. And like how it is to fear change in that mm-hmm. way. Romanticize and non-romanticize it. And then like you have characters speak to each other. I'm like, I just want you guys to continue to think about each other a little bit more. (laughs) Like like those parts. That's really good. I love that. Yeah. I was like, I wish this was all like maybe a smidge more internal. Yeah. I think that would have changed the book enormously for the better. That's so astute. Yeah. I want them to think about each other more instead of talking to each other. (laughs) Although once again, I would say, no, teens are constantly thinking about each other. It's like like ad nauseum. It's exhausting. It's so hard to be a teen. It's hard to be a teen, whether you're in Bushwick or Kansas. Kansas. It is hard to be a teen. It is hard to be a teen. It's actually not, but it feels hard. Well, it's because like your hormones and everything else. But like there's a scene where they're in their car and they're coming back and like he interlaces their fingers and it goes on for a paragraph about the feeling 
feeling of the touch of having someone interlace their fingers with yours. And it's like so fucking spot on about how tingly and good it feels to be. Oh, like, the teen tingles. Oh, very. Does it ever make you feel weird? No, not at all. It just puts me right back at being 17. I, I feel a little bit weird about it. I guess I felt weird about liking Warren. Upon reflection, I feel weird about it. Okay. But like the experience of reading it, like I didn't feel like, you know, my own age being like, hmm, hot teens. I was like, oh, I remember what it was like when I wanted to hold somebody's hand. I feel weird now because on Riverdale, they're all very sexy, but they're all, you know, mm-hmm. adults playing younger. But now I'm older than the adults who are too old to play teens. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a weird milestone. It is a milestone. It's also like a milestone when you're watching Disney movies and like the first time that you identify with like the dad or the mom rather than the princess. <laughs> Like, God damn it. <laughs> Just get realistic, young lady. The people do want to murder you, yeah. Ariel. <laughs> You need to stay home. <laughs> you just need to like finish your fucking choral concert. Zeon, like, girl of the 21st uh, century, what qualifies you at all <laughs> to take on the forces you're taking on? <laughs> or I've heard watching Rugrats, that's like a thing. I'm as sure. Watching Rugrats as an adult, you're like, holy shit, having a baby. <laughs> Whereas a kid, you're like, oh man, these parents are so bumbling. I can get away with yeah, everything. Yeah, those silly parents. And now you're like, oh. oh my God. No wonder everyone's drinking. Yeah. <laughs> everyone's drinking. Like his career, if you think about Stu Pickles and like <laughs> uh, his like career and he's just trying to make it work. And like Tommy's mom, like in hindsight, like you feel like, yeah, she's so crazy looking. And then you're like, oh, I bet she's like an artist. Yep. And now she's a mom. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta put her dreams on hold to read yeah. this insane. Yeah. Or God. The twins and like I would love to revisit the Rugrats and just spend some time with the parents and ruin that part of my life. I think that's right, you know. And like as I said earlier, I think Mr. and Mrs. Benitez at the end when he pulls Zuri aside and is like, "We gotta move. This is how things are gonna go." And he's like, "And I want more for myself." Yes, I was like, that is such a beautiful, cogent, good, affecting change. I think one of the most effective pieces of this adaptation for me were the flushing out of mama and poppy where it's like they do have dreams they did get married young and they do love their kids and they Uh do also have desires of their own and I think that was a really interesting way of evolving this text Mm -hmm. to be something that could be relevant in our current moment was that relationship because there is this idea of like a marriage of convenience that Mm -hmm. comes out of knocking someone up Mm -hmm. that works and also you talked about like the mother not being a shrew I mean she's very invested in her daughter's you know finding love and she's a real romantic and she shows up to the party with her like a food and tin foil and her high heels and her mini skirt. It's like a whole look and like, of course, Darius Darcy's mom is from a fancy part of London. I know that whole scene was like, it's so weird. Like Darcy's mom doesn't get like fleshed out very much at all. Mm -hmm. All we know is that she's English Mm -hmm. and she, at one point, Zuri is like, maybe that's just her face. Mm -hmm. Maybe she just has mad resting bitch face. Yeah. I was like, maybe, but then it never gets like, right. Because like uncovered more Darcy's an orphan in the original so like creating parents at all which you have to do for a 17 year old (laughs) well for this particular line to work he had to have parents parents who were wealthy and well to do especially interesting if he didn't have parents and was being raised by Catherine de Berg grandma remotely well she wouldn't have been remote you're right because Catherine de Berg looms so large in the world of Pride and Prejudice Mm -hmm. because she appears to have so much power Mm -hmm. and so much control Mm -hmm. and I think maybe by making it really difficult for Zuri to leave that house Mm -hmm. is a way of 
of like mm. bringing that back because ultimately she's like a grandma and like yeah. it's very easy to blow off your grandparents. That's a good point. Her isolation and her trappedness there is kind of like bringing up the stakes yeah. or reconfiguring them yeah. in a way that's interesting. The thing that I enjoyed the most about this book and fittingly enough is thinking about how it adapts Jane Austen's story mm-hmm. into something. My favorite part about reading this mm-hmm. was a kind of craft question mm-hmm. of like those tight corners and how are we changing and how are we making this work for this specific space. I think this is a really interesting choice for the first great romance read. Rip Bodice said everybody gets into a Jane Austen thing, which is true. Super true. But is Jane Austen still legible as a romance novel in our current moment? If Pride and Prejudice came out, you know, today, Mm -hmm. would we still understand that as a romance novel? I think that's one of the interesting questions and like why this is a choice. There's something to be said that like some readers of romance are deeply uncomfortable with explicit sexuality. Mm -hmm. So then having a sweet or God forbid, chaste romance <laughs> is like an entire thing inside a subgenre. So then for the inaugural read to like sort of flush out or turn the lights on and how many romance readers there are, which is a ton, is to start with something that isn't explicit. Something that people are going to be okay with saying, hey, I read this. Yeah. Which is a YA romance is a good way to do something that's sweet and chaste without being sweet and chaste, which right. almost comes across as a weird fetish. It does. It does. <laughs> it super duper does. I agree. So I think like this is like an entree move. I can see that line of thinking and it feels like a perfectly like wise choice. Yeah. I still like even hesitate to think about this as like a YA romance novel. Mm-hmm. And I would like to read something that like people like generally agree is a YA romance novel because Anna Dressed in Blood, while people described it as such, they did doesn't seem to come across that way. And honestly, like Pride, I get it. Like mm-hmm. it's Pride and Prejudice, which is like our romance novel, mm-hmm. the romance novel. But I guess I'm asking this question of like, what makes something a romance novel in 2018? Mm-hmm. Because we live in a fanfic moment mm-hmm. and we live in a post Kathleen Woody Wiss world and Nora Roberts and mm-hmm. like all of these other figures have come and reshaped the genre in a way that I don't think it's enough to say what happens in Pride and Prejudice is I would never not say it's a romance because it's so important but it's not a romance as we understand it today and because this adaptation hews so close to that original text I'm not really comfortable with even saying like this is a romance novel. Mm, I mean I think that depends on like how broadly you're defining the obstacle mm-hmm. right and I think like the two can constitutive components of any romance are like the couple, the obstacle that they either one or both have to overcome, usually both, better both. And then like they're happily ever after. Mm -hmm. And like in the broadest strokes possible, I think like those are still the pillars that romance is stitching itself to. Yeah, right. And in this way, by having them be teens, the stakes felt so low as an adult that their obstacle didn't even begin to feel like a fully fledged obstacle unless we were really Mm -hmm. talking about the gentrification and the money difference. That's a very beautiful, broad way of looking at what is romance. But I do think we got to talk about the obstacle Mm -hmm. because I don't think the obstacle can be just anything. I think the obstacle has to be something keeping them from being together. And there can be lots of other peripheral problems, Mm -hmm. but what's the central problem that is keeping these two people apart?
apart. I don't think there is a central problem keeping those two apart. No, it was Warren, aka Wickham. They resolved it in a text message and Mm -hmm. then she boots him off the stoop Mm -hmm. and like, that's it. Her socioeconomic status is frowned upon, but the grandma doesn't have any real control over what Darius is going to do because he's a teen. I think that's where it falls apart for me. I think in Pride and Prejudice, the original text, that central problem of how they're going to be together is their social status preventing them knowing one another and Mm -hmm. from talking to one another and having that space. And so it gets drawn out with like lots of peripheral problems and stuff gets resolved in surprising ways and like all of these other relationships come up. And I guess that's exactly where it fell apart for me as like, I don't feel right saying that this is a romance novel because the central problem is not keeping our hero and heroine apart. Not really. Not really. I agree. Their misunderstandings are almost immediately overturned. The one misunderstanding that was never really resolved enough for me was Ainsley and Janae. Bingley at the behest of Darcy is like told to go make up and like, you know, marry her. But like they get together in the very beginning and then they spend the entire book away from each other. And I'm like, yeah, that's too bad. And there's also this thing of like reading someone else's interpretation of Pride and Prejudice because Mm -hmm. the problem of Bingley and Jane looms so large in it for me. Mm -hmm. But in this book, it feels like just kind of a way to get Darius and Zuri together. That's how it works. But it's part of the central problem in Pride and Prejudice. At least to me, it was. For sure. But it's not part of... And so it kind of feels like maybe that wasn't how our author interpreted Pride and Prejudice because she is is following the pattern so cleanly and Mm -hmm. so closely that whenever there are those slippages, it's kind of fun because it kind of indicates... It's a book club in and of itself. You're seeing how someone else read this very tired, well-trod story. Indeed. I did say that Pride and Prejudice is the most tired, but coming to something like this has reminded me the text is in fact rich. It is. So much happens in that fucking book. God, all the turns are so good. And like one of the things that was like, as you say, reviving about this for Pride and Prejudice itself, it like it made me remember all of the ways in which I think about and relate to that text. And like the fact that it is tired, but like, I'm going to fucking pay money every time it fucking comes every out. Every time. You know? I want like, the, I want Mr. Darcy and the big-eyed Mr. Bingley. Yeah. And like, I wanted, if anything, I felt like there should have been more Mr. Collins. He's yep. the funniest fucking part of... God, he's so funny. She's like a really... <laughs> the silly sisters and mm-hmm. the mom. And like, it's just, it's so lovable. Yep. It is so eminently lovable. I mean, the minute the Darcy character shows up in anything, against my better instincts, and as much as I want to be queen of the hot take and be like, Darcy is overrated I'm immediately like ah! <laughs> here he is he's gonna be so standoffish and handsome at 10,000 pounds a year like, I love you I love most ardently <laughs> <laughs> I just like lose my mind every time the Darcy shows up in anything I'm like <laughs> wow I know it's And I think like that's one of the things. Yeah, like for sure Pride and Prejudice is tired, but like timeless and its staying power Mm -hmm. remains as strong today as it was in 1850. But this this is a really interesting thing that has just come up with you talking about how you didn't really like the Elizabeth in Mm -hmm. this book. You didn't really like like Zuri Luz, but the Darcy 
Yep, the Darcy. And that kind of brings something up about romance in general for me, which is who really is our central character in these Mm -hmm. books? Is Mm -hmm. it ever the heroine? Because if we can flip-flop the heroine as much as people do Elizabeth, but I think the Darcy is the most consistent figure in these Pride and Prejudice adaptations. Yes. Like this unreadable, standoffish, moody, Mm well-to-do. Elizabeth is always going to be like a little bit more of a messy bitch. Even potentially like a Mary Sue. Yeah, but yeah, we can always change the Elizabeth but our Darcy has to be the same and I think that in one sense like there's then a universality to Mm -hmm. an aloof handsome well-to-do stranger yeah he's he's like the manic pixie dream girl yes he's just a projector screen oh my god yes (laughs) and then like so it doesn't and so like yes Elizabeth has to be all of these other complicated things and sometimes we like her and sometimes we don't because of how we show up to Elizabeth yeah but we always show up to Darcy the same way because he like projector screen. Yeah, like, hello, you look exactly like I want you to look. You're yeah. having the secret thoughts that I want you to secretly have. And it I tingle when I touch you ever so lightly. <laughs> oh my God, dude. Oh my God. The Darcy is the manic pixie dream girl. Fucking real. TM, TM. Well, we are going to publish an academic paper on this. And so you need to just stop if you're thinking about stealing that idea. No, we're definitely going to write a thesis. The Darcy and the manic pixie dream girl. Projector screen. Jesus, desirability. Just, you know what? We're going to Google it and someone else has already written. <laughs> I don't think so, man. I'm going to Google um, it right now. <laughs> I was listening to this podcast and the guy was like, get ready for my hot take. I think that the fact that they had that crazy cold summer when Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, I think the fact that this volcanic eruption happened changed the course of art forever. And he was like genuinely saying that like he was the first person to come up with that idea. And I was like, homeboy, you don't get to act like a smarty pants. That's embarrassing. And that's actually my greatest fear is that I'm going to come up with something and be like brace yourself I don't know I think Darcy's manic pixie dream girl is pretty earth shattering frankly I'm sure it was earth shattering when it originally came out if it's already come out if not it might be earth shattering right now but that's my greatest fear is that I'm gonna think I have a really great original idea and then it'll be like dropping a stack of research that has already been there done that funny story that happened in romance landia what happened I mean it was the call out of Nora Roberts for the title well that's not really the same thing I mean I thought this was how this worked and then it didn't. Yeah, I think that's a general fear I have. But no, I have a very specific fear that I'm going to write something like a paper or a book and be like, buckle up, ding dongs. And then it's going to be like, everyone has already So it's like, you don't want to be... I don't want to be that guy saying, hot take, volcano changed the course of art in the Western world. Or that like, you want to be Armageddon, not Deep Impact, because Deep Impact came out two months later. Yeah, but in a very specific way, which is the way of like making a statement about art and culture. Mm. Also, that's one of the things like when you produce media... Which is why we peer review papers to stop that kind of... Thing exactly <laughs> and it's like and it's not only just to like save everybody but from I embarrassment so embarrassed if i even got to the peer review process and they were like uh this is definitely already exists or maybe just like have you read this article because like sometimes people come in with you know there's a lot out there to read yeah there's so much out there to but read. i do want you to know that if you've ever submitted a paper for peer review and mm-hmm. someone has gotten back to you and been like oh 
oh, have you read this one very specific article? And then it was basically your argument. That was them letting you down easy. Yep. And you just lived my truest nightmare. It's interesting that being the let down easy rather than publishing and then having everybody come at you with that article. Well, I think that's like the best case scenario, but yeah. it's still a bad case scenario for me. It's okay. still a source of anxiety and shame for something that hasn't even happened to well, me. Well, <laughs> we will Google Mr. Darcy is Manic Pixie Dream Girl and edit as needed. Yeah. Oh, shit. That'd suck. Sexiest bit. I think like the sexiest aspect for me was that it was summer in the city and everything gets real sultry. And uh, I think that was a really good move to kind of make a book sexy because I think Pride and Prejudice, a lot of it happens in the wintertime and like this gray kind of foggy. It's always raining. You know, it's in England. I think the sexiest part was the setting for me. Mm-hmm. Summertime. Summer in the city. He pauses as if making sure it's okay. And that's when I finish what he started. I fall into his kiss, making sure that I'm still in the lead, that I'm still in control. And he slips his hand around my waist and pulls me in. I pull him even closer. We feel like one body. And in that moment, I can't believe that this is happening. This kiss, this hold never crossed my mind is something that would be real. I hated him. I hated everything about him. But this, this isn't hate. Yeah, it's when they stop to get fried chicken on the way back to New York and they kiss for the first time was Isabeau's sexiest part. Also the hand holding in this. (laughs) Can't tell you how much the hand holding like just tingles. (laughs) Weirdest bit. I mean, we talked about the language. Mm -hmm, I think that was probably mine. I found that alienating or just like, I don't know, Warren in general or like how Layla got out. Yeah, that was weird. And then Carrie's turn, I think. Yeah, I thought that was nice. It was nice, but there was like nothing. An empathetic character there at the end. Yeah, but there was nothing to like seed that ground for me. So it like came as quite a surprise. I was like, oh, Carrie doesn't suck. That's nice. Universal kind of like women looking out for women moment. There was a nice moment when Darius confronts Zuri. He's like, why are you using Carrie as like your way to gauge who you are as a person? But then he goes on to be like, you are so different from other girls. You're too special to compare yourself to Carrie. I got really excited because I was like, it's happening. And then it didn't happen. When will it happen? (laughs) When will it happen? (laughs) When will it happen? Here's how, okay, I'm going to provide solutions, Mm. not just offer criticism. Here's how it should have gone down. He should have been like, why are you using Carrie to gauge yourself? You're two very different women. And both of them are fine. Both are valid. You're so valid and she's so valid. Can't you just be valid? Can't you just be for yourself and not be against Carrie? Yeah. And that would be the end of the conversation. That would have been great. And she's like, oh, that gives me a lot to think about. Thank that you, That gives me a Darius. lot to think about. And that also frees me from feeling like I have to compete with Carrie for your affections because mm-hmm. it's not really about competing. It's about people choosing. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. Yeah. When's it going to happen? I don't know, man. I wait with anticipation and bated breath for the day that women will not be weaponized against one another in the genre. This is our New Year's resolution challenge for romance, which is stop comparing women to other women like it's a competition. Just stop. Just stop. For a whole year. If we could just stop. Imagine what that would do. Saying she's not like other girls. Yeah. If you could just stop it, just stop it. And there's a million different ways to say that without explicitly saying it. So don't get cute. Just don't perpetuate the sentiment. Mm, It's not a competition. All right. Gentrification. You know, people say gentrification is such a complex issue. Mm -hmm. But I think the people who say that are just the people who want to move into the neighborhood. Because it really is like at its core, folks with more money coming into an area that the median income or whatever is lower than what they have and they start to increase demand for fancy goods organic products that kind of thing and eventually it leaches into property values and people cannot afford to live in their communities anymore it also complicates and manifests in like a higher surveillance police presence like that discussion about how the park has changed 
yeah was really interesting and I think really does drive at the more complex part of it where it's like it wasn't great that there were people shooting up in the park like Benitez weren't using the park the way that like the music festival is utilizing it and they weren't ever there after dark but you know that comes with higher property values and like being shoved out of your own neighborhood and like a higher police presence that definitely doesn't make communities of color feel safer here's the thing ultimately the family at the end of the book has to leave their neighborhood for another neighborhood yep and that's kind of the thing about this idea of like gentrification is complicated because right the park is better but ultimately these people are going to be pushed out of their homes which is bad like there's nothing complicated about that people losing their way of life and people losing their ability to live having a choice taken away gentrifiers are in a space because they have a choice Mm -hmm. and they are removing the option to stay from people who are more established in that area yeah and that's the thing that kind of bugs me because like gentrification or about about this book no about the conversation around gentrification Mm -hmm. broadly it's like this idea of like but we're also going to bring a community center and it's like your community center isn't going to do anything to maintain property values what actual solution are you going to provide for saying like people who live here can continue to live here and also enjoy the privileges of the folks who are moving in Mm -hmm. like that solution never comes up people just say gentrification is complicated and then continue to do it and like fuck me because I love those fancy cocktail bars and ridiculous restaurants and I love going to a neighborhood that also has like an authentic whatever you know Mm -hmm. like look at this crazy Czech place or look at this real authentic Mexican food I also do that I'm very much a first wave gentrifier I acknowledge that about myself I think it's interesting too especially living in Chicago where like the community especially in Pilsen right now and Southside Pilsen Southside I'm thinking of specifically I just read about it in uh, Chicago Black Beat about community leaders coming forward with solutions about how to maintain property values especially like around the 606 and like what that means 606 is gone the 606 is outrageous Wicker Park is a finished project the people who are fighting gentrification in Wicker Park right now are the gentrifiers and they're just trying to make it look like they're not like Wicker Park is done for man yeah I mean it was done for five years ago but like 10 years ago it's just they keep bringing it up like they're gonna do something like who are you gonna bring back those people are gone the people who suffered under gentrification have left like a quick tutorial in Chicago West Side neighborhoods so Wicker Park and Noble Square lead into Logan Square which is like also going through gentrification it's like not totally finished Mm -hmm. it's still like a lot of young artists as opposed to older people Mm -hmm. Logan Square is surrounded by Humboldt Park Mm -hmm. Hermosa and property values in Humboldt Park in this year alone Mm -hmm. jumped 85%, which is because people want to be near the scene in Logan Square Mm -hmm. and Wicker Park, but they don't want to pay the rent, but they're still able to pay significantly higher rents than are normal in Humboldt Park. Mm -hmm. Now, whenever you have gentrification happening in an area, you get an increased police state and you Mm -hmm. also get an increase in violence and general community tension. It is caused by white people being very comfortable calling the police on mostly peaceable activities. Activities. Hermosa, for example, mm-hmm. is a mostly Latinx community. Mm-hmm. In fact, their neighborhood board meetings are pretty much conducted entirely in Spanish. And I know this because a white person I know tried to get involved in their neighborhood committee and went to the meeting and was like, whoa, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and then was immediately like, oh, I just wish I could participate. And like, that's very well and good. But your longingness to participate is actually going to threaten a way of life. Mm-hmm. And Hermosa is a nice 
area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have questions about this, especially because like here on the north side, Rogers Park is one of the most integrated neighborhoods that has weathered gentrification in certain parts and not as well in others. Rogers Park is essentially like a college town because it's feeding into Loyola, isn't it? And that's Northwestern. Where, yeah, that's where students at Loyola and Northwestern. So it'll be like Hyde Park and that it's always stable and it's always pretty integrated yeah that's the other thing that happens you're a neighborhood that has like a college association or a university associated with you i think rogers park is special because it's so big and like all of the loyola students are forced to live on campus for the first three years so Mm -hmm. like they only have the potential to live out in the community for one which changes the way that housing works over there i don't know i think about this and i think like one of the ways in which this book didn't make a definitive statement about gentrification which i also found weird since one of its central problems was working on gentrification but then yeah. in the end when they move yeah. like they get more space which is seen as a net good but then they all have to get up at 6 30 to get yeah. to school on she time. says she has more space and less time yeah which is like the ultimate problem of urbanity right and like i don't know the fact that i was left with a question mark when i was like this feels like a completed thought though yeah that's the thing it's like making a statement but then going up a little bit at the- yeah <laughs> and it's like, like well this isn't actually a question yeah it's like but do you think part of it is the house in Bushwick, the brownstone in Bushwick has been established as Darcy's big, beautiful house that he loves? We can't problematize Pemberley without problematizing the Darcy. I, but I feel like the Pemberley was problematized from the beginning and then like only came to be like brick by brick, chapter through chapter, like recommissioned in Zuriley's eyes. And like that reclamation of Pemberley, which was from the beginning, like this real sore spot. But the way like, it gets reconstituted as a positive or like a net good or mm-hmm. whatever in her mind has to do with things that have absolutely no impact on her community. Like it yep. has a beautiful garden. Like it has pleasures that she can enjoy right with the Darcy I think maybe there's something there of like we can't say Pemberley is bad without saying the Darcy is bad Mm. because I do think Pemberley and Darcy are very they're inextricably inextricably linked yeah they are critical yeah like because they combined they represent financial security and a safety net yeah exactly and that's what that's um, part of the allure that's part of it and and also like we understand Darcy as a good man once we understand his home right and so I think maybe that's kind of the weirdest part of this book for me is that it doesn't problematize the Pemberley and it wants to talk about gentrification but you can't say gentrification is bad except for whenever it's a really nice house that your boyfriend likes his good big house that he's so proud of that you also now get to exclusively enjoy it's not like the book is trying to have it both ways Mm -hmm. but the book is unable to resolve the issue of Pemberley in a way that is conducive to whatever it's trying to say about gentrification I think it's weird that we see three insides of Pemberley we see the entryway when she comes to get her sister Uh we see the house party and we see the cocktail party the cocktail party and then we see the basement and the this top this might be the problem it's like it's not supposed to be Pemberley until the end it's supposed to be Netherfield Park yeah and so like the fact that it is Netherfield Park in the first two instances and then changes it's like internal soul location to Pemberley yeah is a huge move 
Because yeah. in Netherfield Park, Darcy isn't comfortable there. Right, he's not right. comfortable in the entryway. He's not comfortable in like the big den with yeah. the theater. And he's uncomfortable with her seeing him there because mm-hmm. he's not comfortable in those spaces inside of his house. So then it's like weird that this house occupies two huge properties yeah. from Fred and Prejudice because his brother, Bingley Ainsley, is comfortable in all of the spheres of the house. Yeah. I don't know. I this think, is a problem. I think the problem of Pemberley is like getting at what's wrong with the conversation about gentrification in this book or what slips. Mm-hmm. The slippage in the conversation is I think the fact that this home is supposed to occupy two properties in Pride and Prejudice and because Pride and Prejudice is so fraught and carries so much meaning yep. and the movements in the books carry so much meaning for fans of the genre, fans of the book, um, fans of the movie, right? It's too tricky. It is. And like tricky biscuits. Because you can't making because- one property both properties because netherfield park itself is a question about like all of that that goes into it like the family that owns the estate netherfield park can't live there anymore mm-hmm. because their estate has fallen away and they don't have the money to upkeep it yeah. so then bingley whose father made his money in trade yeah has let the park at last yeah which is essentially like the old brownstone was stood empty for yeah. many years yeah shit you're right, because it does definitely become Pemberley by it the end. It becomes Pemberley by the end. That's a slippage. That's a slippage that I think kind of creates the, uh, yeah. <laughs> the end of the statement <laughs> about gentrification. <laughs> yeah, great point. That's the weirdest part. Okay. What's the weirdest part for you? Oh, I thought we covered this. I th- I feel like it's just a shared experience. Yeah. Oh my God. It's first January in the can. Boom. Taking care of business. We want to hear what you think about um, Pride and what you think about Pride and Prejudice. And is the Darcy a projector screen? Is Elizabeth Pem- a Mary Sue? Is Elizabeth a Mary Sue? Can Pemberley be Park. Netherfield Park? Can they be the same? No. Definitive no. No. <laughs> Take stock of of what you've done in the last week and where you've spent money and ask, am I part of gentrification? And the answer is probably yes. Yeah. All right. On that note. Loosen your stays. But never your principles. Mwah! Indeed. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. All editing and music is done by Nick Gravelin. Our logo is by Mary Reichman. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. Feeling woeful about having to wait a whole week for more Womance? Well, cheer up, Buttercup. You can creep or connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, or our website. Our webpage is womancepod.com. If you prefer to be more verbose and or direct, why not send us an email? We're womancemail at gmail.com, and we can't wait to hear from you. In the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast listening app. Until next week. <laughs>